Hi, this is Ryan Bloom from Urban Bonfire. On today's episode of the Fireside Chat, interior designer Anne Michael Sinyan. We're going to hear from Anne about growing up in Newport Beach and deciding and choosing to still live there. And even more interestingly, living in her original family's home that she has renovated and redesigned. We're going to hear all about how her education and love of art has morphed itself into her practice and career and how she still today works with little tricks and tips and a very unique voice and sense of style that adds incredible value to her clients' homes and projects across the United States. Enjoy the episode. Before today, I did did my sort of research and I I made an interesting uh, note in my mind that what I have learned in my time living in the U.S., and I lived in the U.S. for almost six years, uh, many moons ago, um, versus growing up here in, in Montreal, in, in Quebec, and, and in Canada, is the U.S. historically is a far more transient society. It's very normal that people pick up, move across the coast, across the state, to another city for an opportunity, for a relationship, for a job, things like that. And, and it's not necessarily completely easy, but the U.S. is very well set up to do that. And it's quite rare today that you see someone who is, I was born here, raised here, and I still live here. Myself, and Montreal is very different from that. Most of my friends who I grew up with still today live and raise their families in Montreal. And knowing or having researched, seeing that you grew up in Newport Beach, still live in Newport Beach. So I just, it me, I made a mental note of wanting to ask you about, was that a, something that just happened? Was it a proactive choice saying, this is where I'm from, I love, I don't want to leave. Help me understand that a little bit. Okay. Well, when I, so I went to college in Southern California and I got an art history degree at Scripps College for Women, shout out. Um, And I got married two weeks after I graduated college, which is unusual. And my husband was starting business school in Los Angeles. And we were in Los Angeles. We stayed in Los Angeles for many years. And he ended up going into business with two people by coincidence that were living in Newport Beach. I was pregnant with our fourth child. And I said to him, if you're going to be in partnership with people, you should be in the same town as they are in. And I would prefer to raise my kids in Newport Beach. They had started school in LA. It's an easier way to raise children in Newport Beach as opposed to in Los Angeles. And so we moved because of that. Um, tragically, my husband died of a heart attack at 40, leaving me with four little babies. And then I was so glad to be there with my parents down the street. That was really helpful. I've now been remarried for 13 years to a man who also grew up and was raised in Newport Beach and never lived anywhere else and who I didn't know growing up, but we have many, many mutual friends. And so that's sort of how it happened. First of all, I mean, thanks for the story. And I'm so, I didn't know that. And I'm so terribly sorry. What a, what a, I don't even know really what to say. How it was just a sudden, very, very sorry before he turned 41. It was horrific, but the good story is I have a wonderful life and my kids are all great and a wonderful husband. So it, it out of tragedy came greatness. 
obviously a glass half full uh, yeah. or more per type of person, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Um, you mentioned a couple minutes ago, and, I, and again, in my research, saw your formal education had history and art and art history as a major focal point. Yeah. And I also noted that you spent time in Florence, in Italy, yeah. looking at or, 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 or immersing yourself in the incredible art that Florence is just, again, no words to, to describe the, the type of things that you see. And I think for a lot of people, or this is more of a, of a question, that often there is a, a, mis a misinterpretation that art influences design or vice versa. In other ways, it very much does. And for someone who is a, uh, a creative and a designer like, like yourself, I, I can't help but think that even if it is not necessarily conscious in the moment, that things that we see, art, uh, uh, architecture, color, things like that influence design, even if we can't pinpoint it, it may come into play down. So can you help me understand the role that your passion, education in art and art history, how that has played into your career? It's monumental. I mean, I, I, you know, started out as an art historian and thought I was going to have a career and, you know, curatorship or something like that. And I actually was about to start a master's program in art history in LA when a course description at UCLA caught my attention, which was the history of the decorative arts. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, I've studied art, formal art for all these years, but never the decorative arts. It just wasn't offered or I, or I didn't notice it. And I took that class and that class ended up being the intro to UCLA's interior design program. And it wasn't until then that I realized I'd been interested in architecture and design my whole life. Like I was that kid who rearranged the furniture and played furniture store in my grandma's living room and would lie on the beach in Newport drawing out house plants that probably made no sense. And so it was that was the impetus for this whole thing. And I started the interior design program then, and it just all sort of blended together. But I always tell students, besides the formal education that is important, you need to go look at museums. You need to travel, you need to look, you need to see, you go, to, go, go to hotels, go to restaurants, go to places where there's great art and great architecture and great design. And that is inspirational and so important, I think. I completely agree. I mean, for myself, you know, I, I'm not, I'm certainly not a creative, not a designer, very, very far from it. Um, but I do acknowledge that inspiration and, and comes from so many different places. Uh, you know, Urban Bonfire's inspiration came from the rickety old house that's still on stilts that my parents bought in 1980 for $28,000 in the bonfire pit that our family built for that's where the inspiration came. And, and, and today travel, you know, having traveled to Europe through the U S the Caribbean, Israel, uh, uh, Africa, it absolutely plays and not always at the moment where I can say, I remember that, or I can, but it is somewhere in there, almost in the subconscious where it's, it's stored and, and it can be called on, when inspiration or creativity is is needed, I think it's, I think it's really, 
I think it's a beautiful thing. And, and it's one of the things that I, and I have, um, I have two children, not, not four. One is uh, just turned 15 and one just turned four. And one of my fears often is that the, the internet and technology has made it very easy in some ways to visit the Louvre or visit the Pantelvecchio, for example, in Florence and get a sense of it, see it without having to go physically touch it, feel it, those types of things. And my hope is that the, how quickly technology is advancing, it doesn't stop my kids from saying, no, I'm going to put on a backpack and I want to go see it, touch it, feel it, it for won't. myself. It won't. I hope. I really, I really hope. I think travel so much easier than it will except for this year, but for this before year. this travel was so much easier. And at least my kids, they're very get up and go. So hopefully it will be yours as well. I hope so too. And they're um, adventurous. I think well, at least mine are maybe more I than think, I, I, I think, I think mine will be too. And I think it's, um, I, I, I've tried very hard to foster that, that level of, of, of adventure and, you know, there were, there were far fewer confines and rules, I think, when we were kids, you and I, than there are today, far less structure. I think we just went outside and played and our backyard, the beach, the street, the for whatever was the, was the canvas and we added the color. And I think one of the things I tell my wife is, you know, gymnastics, hockey, this, math tutor, it's so structured that often the, the canvas sometimes can be missed. And, and, and I, I well, find myself talking about that. One of the things that. that I liked about raising my kids in Newport Beach, as opposed to a big city, there was more freedom. They could get on their bike and ride to the beach and go to junior lifeguards and play afterwards. You know, it, whereas in LA, everything was a structured play date. And I feel Makes that I'm sense. glad that they had that experience. Makes total, total sense. Um, from the time that you finished your education, UCLA, you went into the interior design. Can you help me understand or talk me through the evolution of your career? How did it start to where you are now with your own firm, remarkable projects, uh, a, a social media following that I aspire to have, and and a, and a frankly, and I'll, and I'll give you an incredible compliment on on your social media. It feels incredibly real where you've got beautiful pictures of projects and then you've got you and you've got dogs and you've got a meal or snacks or things like that on a table. It, it feels like a true representation of what you are putting into it. Oh, thank and you so I, much. I, I love seeing that where it's not, anyone can just put up pretty pictures of projects. That's like not hard to do, but it feels like you have by design drilled down into the fact that your design really impacts and influences people's lives and the platform for them. Well, and that's really want, so complimentary. Thank I, you. I want to talk. I want to talk to you about that and sort of your journey in in okay. business and how you got there. Well, so I started the program at UCLA, and I was, and I'm. It's been so long. I might not be exactly correct on the details, but let's say it was about a year or two into it. It was very very long then. I don't know if it still is. And funny enough there was just starting to be a CAD class. Like I never took a CAD class. That was like by the time I was leaving. So I learned to draft by hand. Um, and I was lucky enough to be able to, um, with my parents' help, buy an old house in LA and renovate that mm -hmm. and sell it. 
um, we lived in it for a year, you know, made some money. And some around that time, a friend of mine's mother hired me for my first real job in San Marino, California. And they hired me to redo their kitchen and a back like 70s playroom into a formal, uh, like a sunroom. And that was my first job. And I just continued to get jobs, you know, that mostly smaller then. It was often, you know, an, a first time home buyer kind of job because that's who the people that I knew, unless it was somebody's parents. And I just kept working and doing school too and having babies. And then um, I just got bigger and bigger jobs. And when I moved to Newport Beach, I was do I was working. And then actually after my husband died, I stopped for a few years and just flipped some houses. Okay. It was really difficult to work for clients, given all that was going on in my personal life. And I, I remember saying, it's really hard to care about the tassels on someone else's pillows when you're struggling to get your family to be okay. And I knew I couldn't do a good job if I didn't care about the tassels on their pillows, right? Because a lot of what we do is, in the scope of things, frivolous in a way, when it comes down to the minor little details, but it isn't. But it seems like it when you're in tragedy, like I just, I couldn't do it. So I was able to do that for a few years. And then I, you know, a few years passed and I got another big job, pretty prominent project in Newport Beach. And it's just bigger and bigger and bigger since then. So if I understand correctly, you have not necessarily had the experience of working for, I mean, obviously we work for our clients, but you have been entrepreneurial and pivoting, figuring out through your entire career. Yes. I think it would have been good to work for somebody else looking back on it, because then I think systems and procedures I would have learned from someone else. I had to make it up along the way. And it's taken a long time to get to where I am now, which is, you know, a finely tuned machine with a staff and, you know, a bookkeeper and all these things that mm -hmm. along the way I didn't have. Yeah. I, also, and I try to mentor young designers. I get interns from the local design school and things like that to, and teach them the things that no one taught me. And I imagine that many of those things would carry over into a number of different professions or, or careers. But if, if you can articulate, what are some of those things that you try to instill in young designers or people coming to you for mentorship and, and inspiration? Silly little things. And I told the story yesterday, I was interviewing an intern candidate. When I was in design school, I went to the design center and I went to Brunswick and Fee, which at the time was the biggest, fanciest showroom there. And I was pulling samples for a project, but for whatever reason, I didn't want to say I was a student and I was pretending that I had a client. And they asked me what the side mark was. And I had no idea what a side mark was. So I like totally must have looked like a ding dong. So I always tell my intern, this, nobody learns that in school. A side mark is the name of the project or the name and room and item. It's, it's a tracking mechanism, commonly used term in the design field. And not one intern I've ever had knew, has known that. So that's a little thing. And then just procedures, how to be client. You know, you have to realize this is a client um, focused business. You have got to be full service and the higher end you are, the higher end service you need to give and you need to care about all their little problems in life. And 
I really try to get them to understand that. Also, you know, younger people today don't want to pick up the phone and make a phone call. They want to email. And I'll say, you know, have you heard back from Urban Bonfire yet? No, I emailed them. I haven't heard back. I know you guys would never not return an email, but as an example, and I always have to pick up the phone and call them. Um, And then just things like, you know, I just think it's so important to have a bookkeeper. It just has made my life like next level. And I, she does all the invoicing and all the, all that stuff. And you have to be organized in the business Yes. So that you can be free to do the creative because the business will pull you down. If not, if not in the immediate, at some point, it's one of those things you can't, you can only cheat it for so long until it comes, whether that is, and I was talking to somebody yesterday, you know, entrepreneur, my next door neighbor here in, in Montreal, unbelievable artisan candle maker, built her own candle company, manufactures here, beautiful. And some government thing that has to be done each year when you do, when you don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And the date is this, then instead of spending an hour or two, you're spending two days running around trying to get it. So I completely, completely subscribe to that investment in foundational resources that allow us to do what we're good at doing or, or at least what we love to do. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan and I wasn't when I was younger and it really. Well, you don't even know, especially if you'd have it work for somebody else, right? Like I just started, I didn't know what I was doing. Who's ever heard of an employment agreement? I mean, it's just like, these are all completely things that, as you said, you know, learning as we go and, and refining and obviously probably like, like most entrepreneurs, trying to not make mistakes twice uh, and, and, you know, ever evolving, especially now with the, and and I'm just trying to play catch up. I'm sure in many ways uh, on just the speed and newness of technology. And I just learned Instagram and oh now it's TikTok and this one, like it's so fast. Yes. Um, So just incredible. And you have to have some younger people working for you who know these things. You know, who grew up with technology. It's very helpful. For like sure. the little thing I learned today from you, from your staff. And I, and I, it, yes. And I, I learned from them uh, a lot more than they learn from me uh, these days. I, I, uh, I assure you. Um, I want to, it's actually a really good segue into something I wanted to ask you about, which is if you go back since you've been doing this for, for some time, if you go back, let's say 10 or, or 15 years to the envisioning process or the initial work that you are doing with clients, trying to investigate, explore what the project can be, look like, feel like. I think back then it was a little bit more, um, you know, people went to the magazine shop and got magazines and clipped and maybe put some pictures around or, and today, you know, there is Pinterest, there is House, there are the websites of major brands and companies. And the question I want to ask you is, in some ways, has your role shifted when people are now coming with, this is my inspiration and showing you almost a mood board versus historically explaining or getting a sense of, and then allowing you that full realm of creativity to bring them a mood board back. What has that done to the, to the relationship on, and the, the, the creativity or the flexibility 
of creativity for, for someone in, in the design driver's seat? You know, you know, that's an interesting question that I hadn't thought of. I mean, I would love for a client to come with to me with mood boards. I usually find that the reason why they're hiring a designer is they have a mood board that's 10 different moods and that maybe all don't go together. So my job is often to decipher through all of that stuff and come up with what it is they really want. And I, 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 I'm thinking of a particular project and I do a lot of ground up and a lot of like complete guts. So, you know, it, it's down to the construction part of it. And every week this client would show me a new look that she liked. And I'd be like, okay, wow. Like this is just, you can't have all of these things in one building. So in that sense, the job is the same. There's just more tools to get those images. I would say, and I'm losing track of time. I'm thinking seven years ago or whenever house started that really, I had a, every client and I had a shared um, board or whatever you call it. And we really used it. It was, it's become less common in the last few years. I haven't used it at all with clients and it, the sites changed. It's a lot more of selling products, I think, yes. than it really is what it started as. Yes. Um, and so, but I do think with Pinterest and all these things, there's just so many more places to get images. And I actually think it makes things easier because I'm not a great, you know, artist in terms of like painting or drawing. So I've never been able to like easily present a rendering of what a room is going to look like. And technology now makes that, you know, yes. much more possible to show images. Most people need images. Most people have no idea what their house they're building is actually going to look and feel like. They just mm -hmm. don't. If they did, they have my job. I, I, I am exactly, exactly that person. I lack the, I can look at a picture, an image and say, I like this or I don't, but I don't have the vocabulary or the understanding of design and, and, the, and the, 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 the terminology that's used within the design world to give any form of clear information to anyone. <laughs> I'll, and I'll fill you in on a little secret. I hear the term all the time, clean lines. I have no idea what clean lines actually means. When I look at, some, I, I don't know what I am. In, and, and that's a perfect example where it's, it's just one of the terms, like the one that you mentioned a few minutes ago, that may be very common and defined within the design community, but the average consumer may have absolutely no idea what it actually means. Well, my outdoor kitchen has clean lines. Your product okay. has clean lines. Thank you. I think that's a. I guess that's a good thing. Yeah, it is. You know what Rococo is? Yes. That's not clean lines. That's the office. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. I want to talk to you about the term kitchen. Okay. And the kitchen, and and, and I acknowledge that the indoor kitchen is a need and the outdoor kitchen is a want. And I'm, I, and I, I'm, I'm very clear on that in most cases, although I'm seeing more and more that the, 
the term of indoor and outdoors being removed and very much in the way you have, and, and I've seen the, the beautiful photos, you have really integrated and fused them together both stylistically and from a functionality perspective. I would argue that the use of kitchen and its meaning in people's lives has never been as prevalent as it is today. Um, and that relates, I think, to how much time we spent. When I was a kid, I did my homework in my room. My son does his homework in our kitchen. My daughter has her art up in our kitchen. It's where I have a glass of wine with my wife, for example. And I don't know if that was, I don't remember that being the case growing up. It was more about the cooking and the chaos. Have you seen a sliding scale or a shift on the definition of that physical space in terms of its, its meaning and definition? Absolutely. I think, I think the same goes is true for a formal dining room. I mean, everything used to be a separate pod, right? The kitchen, and then there was the dining room and there, everything was closed off. And I think more and more things are opened up um, and you're, the person cooking doesn't want to be in a room all by themselves. Mm -hmm. They want to be with whatever's going on in the house, whether it's the kids doing the homework or the friends coming over or all that. Um, on the flip side of that, I have noticed that when everything is completely open and there's no division of space, things like a pandemic are difficult because you now have people working and you need to, it, we've discussed this within the design industry that, you know, the complete open floor plan maybe isn't, perfect either. And mm -hmm. you're going to have to have something in between. Um, but definitely the kitchen, I mean, the importance of the kitchen, the, the quality of what goes into kitchens, the, the technology and what that's done to appliances and surfaces and <laughs> everything is just, my gosh, completely different than 20 years ago. And yeah. very different from 30 years ago. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the last decade, I think everything just moved so fast with lighting changing to led and what's available and just just constant shifts and now with smart appliances and just mm -hmm. all that stuff it's just amazing i think there's a far greater interest in cooking mm -hmm. and food and the quality of food and the freshness of food that affects people's desire for a different kind of kitchen than when it was just putting canned vegetables in a pot right? Like you need different things. You enjoy the time and in, in there. I'm a huge cook. So I love to cook and you want to be in a pleasurable environment when you're doing it and you don't want to be all by yourself. Well, I, I think it's a great point you bring up because I remember, you know, growing up, the idea of something around food that was celebratory was in many cases going to a restaurant. That was kind of the, the golden ring that we were going to a nice restaurant, whether it was a birthday or, or some kind of an event. And I think today, to your point, with far greater access to quality food, recipes, techniques, technology and appliances, even just having, you know, YouTube as, as a platform, it is as cool, if not cooler now to cook and do things at home with friends and family as it is to to go out. And well, I think, think that's about a, it. So I'm sorry. No, please. With making a meal for someone, I always think of it sort of like the way I show love. So it's just, it's lovely to be taken out for a lovely dinner in a restaurant, of course. Of course. But there's sure. something about making the food and setting the table and, you know, doing all that that is 
a lovely thing to give somebody else, whether it's your family or friends. I completely agree. And I, and I think that the idea where now, you know, the meal is experiential is, I, I think that it's a very, very important and it's really a beautiful thing because it's one of those areas where I feel like we're coming more back to basics of what the the family gathering or the ritualistic aspect of a meal was. It wasn't just the, you know, food for fuel. It was the, it was the gathering. It was the community. It was the, those types of things, which I think very common in, you know, European or Mediterranean culture is that breaking bread. It, it's far more than just, you know, I eat and I go. So I, I, I love that that's happening. I think um, the pandemic has also, definitely affected that because so many multi-generations are together in a time in a way that never, I mean, to me, that's the good thing that came out of all of this. I had my grown children like for three, they came for three weeks and stayed for three months. That just norm. I mean, I was, it was okay when they left too, but it was really an, an interesting and different experience. All of us together cooking every night, yeah. you know, people working all over the house, it, a wonderful experience. Yeah, it, it really, it is. And, and I guess I don't like the term silver lining, but I think if you can, you know, for lacking a better term than silver lining at, at this moment, I, I think the one thing from the pandemic is it has reinvigorated a, a certain type of family and friend intimacy just by virtue of having slightly more time and, and physical proximity uh, within our bubbles. And, and I have felt that very, very much. Also, I think not being able to travel, not that I think that's a good thing, but it is a good thing to not always be running around, like running somewhere and to just enjoy what you have around you is, is a nice thing. And I mean, I was guilty of it. I mean, I was always everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of nice not to always be doing that. It is. And I think that I, I think that we will end up, I believe, at least speaking for myself, I will pre pandemic, I was out of Montreal traveling anywhere between two and a half and three weeks of every month, visiting dealers, designers, trade partners, you know, growing, growing our business. Um, and I don't want to forego that because I, I love certain parts of it. But I've also realized that it doesn't have to be that much. There's, there, is a, there is a balance that I have learned as a result of here we are, we're having this conversation and we've done so much together and I've never actually met you face to face. Well, I, my first Zoom ever meeting was with the head of a big lighting company. And he was saying kind of the same thing. He was spent three weeks a month flying around to visit all of the salespeople all over the country. And he said, I'm so much more connected to them now because I'm not spending the hours flying there. I'm on a Zoom with them. Not that he never wants to see them again, but the magnitude of it doesn't have to be what it was. I, I totally get agree. that. And I, I never met him and I've done a lot of business with that company too. And, and I believe that it will, I think it's going to come down to like everything else, a quality versus quantity ratio where, you know, the quality and investment of time for that flight is going to have slightly more meaning and more thinking about what is the return on investment of that time and that time away from my staff, my home, my community, my kids, Right. you know, so that that's definitely something that is, 
top of mind for me, for sure. Shifting gears from the discussion of kitchen to now where the outdoors plays its role. And I will first acknowledge that the the environment, the culture, the, the, the weather of California puts it in a very different um, uh, subset of almost anywhere else, in, certainly in North America. Um, and I think that, you know, obviously based on that, California, far more progressive in terms of visual connectivity. I, when my staff finally showed me all the imagery of, of your project, and there were, you know, six or seven close-ups on the kitchen and the features. And then there were two that were taken from the inside looking outwards. That was the most meaningful to me because my goal in Urban Bonfire and its whole essence is to bring the indoor and outdoor environments onto a level playing field because I believe that people will use and enjoy them just as much, if not in that way. Um, in the same way as I asked you earlier about the, the shifting definition of, of kitchen in your clients' worlds in indoors, can you help give me or shed some light or some color on the same thing as it relates to outdoor space activation? Well, let me first tell you, it's interesting that the comment you just made before this about the shot from the inside looking out, that was a very happy um, fact that I hadn't thought of when I decided where to put the kitchen outdoors. And then I stood at the sink and I could see it. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is exactly what I wanted, which was that seamless thing between indoor and outdoor. But I hadn't actually realized it was going to happen. And I think with good design, that happens a lot. You make a lot of good decisions. You get some extra freebies along the way. And that was one of them. I love standing at my kitchen sink inside, looking out at that outdoor kitchen. Um, I did my first quote unquote outdoor kitchen on a house I just redid. So I think it was 22 years ago. And it, I don't even, it, it, there was actually an article in the Wall Street Journal that they called, I don't even know how I got connected with it. And we, it was the start of that term, outdoor kitchen. I convinced these people to put a pizza oven in. They didn't make pizza. I don't know why they let me do it. And they became great pizza aficionados and as you know, I now have a pizza kitchen. It's taken me 22 years to get a pizza oven. And I had them come and yeah. teach us to make the dough and everything. Um, technology, again, has allowed for the materials and the items we can put outside 22 years later to have be greatly enhanced. So, for example, we used to always build outdoor kitchens out of, you know, cinder block and stucco and then put some stainless steel doors on it and call it a sure. day. Yep. And with a product like Urban Bonfire, which is a fully formed cabinet all the way around, I think you like I can leave things outside in my kitchen. I don't bring everything in and have to, you know, it doesn't get dirty unless it's a major windstorm or something. Um, I think it's huge. The countertop material I was able to use didn't exist that many years ago. And there really weren't good options for outdoor countertops, in my opinion. Um and then, of course, the appliances that are available, like we don't just say barbecue, right? I literally can oh. say appliances. Yes. And when I was doing the photo shoot of the project, a question was asked, what can't you make in your outdoor kitchen? And I was going to say bake, 
And then I realized, no, I could bake in my pizza oven. And with the, with all the stuff I have, I can make, we, we are making entire meals out there. We really are enjoying it so much. It's so fun. We, we've, done wok cooking outside on the big outdoor grill. You know, we've been using the rotisserie. We've used it this week already. Just, it's so wonderful. And yes, the weather makes it even easier for us. But I have to say, I'm doing a project in Denver right now. It's a a corporate uh, headquarters. And I was driving around with one of the principals because they're looking to buy a house there. And I noticed that in Denver, very different weather than California, Mm-hmm. Many of the new homes have large covered outdoor areas. Perfect. And I think no matter where you are today, you want to be able to be outside if possible. Maybe it's covered in some parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Whereas like my outdoor kitchen, I don't have a covering. Um, but I think it's, it's easier in California, but I think it's possible probably most places. I completely agree. And, and, you know, one of the historic um, apprehensions to investment outdoors in places where it, whether it's the Northeast, whether it's the Midwest that doesn't have obviously California's weather is the client will say, well, you know, it's, it's only nice here six months a year. So why would I make that spend? And, and my answer to that is, well, if that's the case, why is there a sports car? Why is there a golf course? Why is there, you know, a, a T-shirt in, in many ways? It's not necessarily a question of the abundance and volume of use versus the, the, the quality of, of use and the memory creation that that quality instills. I mean, to your earlier point about the, the, the traditional indoor dining room, I have one. It occupies about a third of the square footage of my main floor of my house. If I use it five times a year, it's a lot. But I've dedicated a huge amount of space to it. So when I use the same psychology of, you know, for on on a per square foot basis, outdoors is far less costly to activate than indoors in, in most cases. So I get a lot of ROI on, on that, on that space. I also think too, if it's only nice, four months, six months, a year, you want to be enjoying those, that shorter time, right? Like you, you want to be outside the whole time. Because or, or, you know don't, you're or, don't, or don't live there. Right. Go live, you know? Well, and also I think the quality part of it is the harsher the weather, the quality of the materials becomes super important too, because you don't yes. want it to get destroyed in the, and I think yes. that's something that urban bonfire has to offer. Well, I, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, it came for us, and you mentioned earlier, you know, the, the cinder block, stucco, and stainless steel. And, and I'm not in any way suggesting that that's wrong or, that, or, that's, or that's going away. It's not. But my opinion of everything that my partner, Stefan, who I think you were on a call with, who's really the, the sort of genius and designer behind all of our, our, our product, um, we, didn't, we didn't want to build an outdoor kitchen product. We wanted to build an indoor kitchen product from outdoor grade materials. And our barometer consistently is if it doesn't work indoor, we're not going to use it outdoor. So we said you would never see an indoor kitchen with a hollow cavity and stainless steel access doors leading into this big hollow nothingness. So why is that the norm or tolerated outdoors? And that's the way we think about what we, what we do. It's exactly to the point you're making. 
you know, too, as, as houses, especially in, you know, expensive, big urban places, um, properties are smaller and smaller and smaller. I think by, as you said, activating your outdoor space, you're getting more square footage and more places to be. And I think it's, you, you don't want it to be different than the inside of your house, like a different quality level. One of my big focuses is, is, and is going to continue to be that whole blurring the line indoors, outdoors that also when you're sitting in your living room, you don't want the fabric to be easily stained. And I did a, a lot of work with Sunbrella mm-hmm. showing how an entire room can be done in outdoor fabrics. I did a place in Hawaii last year. We used gorgeous outdoor fabrics in their inside. You would never know that they were, you know, performance fabrics, but now they don't have to worry when people come in from the pool or the beach or whatever. I think we don't, we want to live elegantly, but we don't want to worry. And I think quality is how you achieve that. It doesn't have to be lots of stuff, but what you have should be quality. I, I I have to bring this up because you just hit something very much from 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 my youth and from my memory of of when I was let me just think for a second when I was ten my parents we moved houses by complete fluke on the same street but two blocks up and it was the first time that my parents had ever thought of using a designer to help with color and, and, and things, things like this. And I remember that in our living room, we ordered this custom sofa, which for my parents at the time was a big spend. It was not something that they had ever, they had ever done. And I remember that it was a room that we were basically never in. We weren't allowed to go in. We wouldn't be able to have a snack there for fear. And even when guests were over those handful of times, people, my mother, and I remember they were like nervous. What if they spill on the couch? And I think that creating these museum-like spaces and homes that are not designed at usage, who are we actually building those spaces for? And, and I love the fact that you just said bringing this umbrella or other types of technologically advanced fabrics into indoor that can handle stain, spill, these types of normal things that we all go through. I love the fact that you are calling attention to that with, 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 with gusto. It's, it's very refreshing because I remember there were parts of our home that were literally cut off from usage. My parents bought a rug on a trip to somewhere where you buy rugs. I can't remember where they went. And then my dad didn't want us to walk on it. (laughs) It's a rug. Like that makes no sense. If I don't know if you know this, but I live in the the home that I grew up in. No, I, I didn't know that. So my parents decided to sell and I was not look, not thinking I would be buying my own home back from my parents, but we did. My husband and I bought the home from them and we use what was the formal living room, which is next to the kitchen as the great room. And the room that was the family room that we watch TV in and this and that is like an office and it, hmm. uh, like a study. So that's a huge shift. Like I rarely sat in the room that I now sit in every day, but it's the room on the view. It's the room with the view of the beautiful, we want to be there. We don't want to be in the room on the other side of the house. And so sometimes people say, is it weird to live in the house that was your parents? And I say, no, you know, it really feels like it's mine. We've, it, it had, it's a great house, but we've changed the way we use the house. 
And one of the things we did was put doors that fully open along the whole backside now. So that just completely, it's just a different experience in the same home. It's kind of interesting. It's a, it's a beautiful thing to hear that we don't hear it often. And and it's, you know, I think getting or, or taking the memory from the, from the physical space, the four walls, but redefining and redefining and or defining rooms and how space is used from. And, and I I just love hearing that. And and I, if I were doing the same and boy, I wish that I could now move into that, that house that I just mentioned, because it is, it was, it was amazing. Um, But I would change it around to your point completely to the best real estate of that home was reserved for guests. And I would change that. I would flip that model on its head and say, let's use Maine and Maine for the 360 days of the year, not the five. You know, I say something to my clients all the time, which is we need to design for the 90% of our life, not the 10%. And it sort of my age now where a lot of people's kids are, have left the nest (laughs) and they're doing their house again or buying a new house. And they were always saying, okay, well, this is Sally's room and this is Bob's room. And I would say, Sally and Bob don't live here anymore. Yes. You want them to visit, but these are really guest rooms. And you too are going to be, you know, we have to even finding a place to eat where it's cozy for two people, but then a way where you can have 20 when everyone comes back, but not to put everything into that 10% to remember what, whatever that is, 90% 90% of your life should get 90% of the attention. And I think we all did it the opposite for a long, long time. Yeah, it's, it's very, very true. And, and I, was, um, I was talking to an architect uh, last week from, from LA um, who builds, or many of his projects are in the average or small is 10,000 square feet. Uh, often is 30, 40, 50, 60,000 square feet. And now where the idea that it was always bigger, 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 now he, he actually made mention of the clients now are, are saying, I want huge, but I actually want to be able to create micro a micro home within the home. So when it's just me and my wife or just me and my kids, it doesn't feel like this you know, I'm in this off-putting huge space that has no intimacy. So it's creating nooks and, and sort of home within a home, which I'd never even heard of before. It was very interesting that is to hear it I defined wonder, that way. There's so many houses are so huge now in certain areas. I, I sometimes wonder if the next generation, is there going to be anyone to buy these houses? I just, they have a different, you know, my 20 something year old kids have a different um, idea about space and um, the world and using resources. And I just wonder if anybody's going to want huge homes, but we'll see. We'll see. I mean, certainly in the, in, you know, in my mother's age group generation in that, you know, early to mid seventies, the idea of the, the utopic retirement home is now less about physical size and more about proximity to experiences. So willing to forego, not live in 5,000 feet, but live in 1,500 square feet. If I can walk to yoga and book club and farmer's market and the types of things that I imagine um, Newport Beach offers being a very, you know, 
small enough to be intimate, but big enough to not feel boring. And I, I get the sense of Newport Beach having that, that, that diversity. Um, and that's what seems to be happening on, a, on almost a worldwide movement towards smaller urban, urban environments. Well, and then the, pan- then the pandemic hit and it fled the urban and everyone went suburban. So yep. it's going to be interesting. It, it, it will indeed. It will indeed. And as people go from urban, which is obviously more modern to suburban, where historically more classic, it, it actually leads into one of the, the last things I wanted to ask you about, which is helping me to understand, and, and I read in, in, on your website, the idea of dynamic edge between classic and modern design. Um, and it sounds simple, but it also sounds really complex in, in morphing those two things together. Can you help me understand what, what that means to, to you and your, and your practice? Well, to, your, to our earlier discussion about my sort of formal educational background, which is the history of art and, and then architecture and design, I really am sort of, it's important to me that things have a real style to them, that, that it's just not a bunch of different elements from a bunch of different architectural styles slammed onto one house. So I think architecture is really, really important. And I redid a house in Newport on the water, which historically has a certain look, right? They were sort of clapboard, you know, seaside looking houses. And when we toured the house down, I said to the clients, I really want people to kind of not be able to figure out is this brand new or did they renovate an old house and put these new features on it? I wanted it to look appropriate to its surroundings, but yet have all the, you know, the doors that can slide into walls and the things that obviously were not done however many years ago. And that's really what that line was actually referring to that project when it was written up in a magazine. Um, So I like contemporary things. I like, and I really like whatever's appropriate architecturally for an environment so that the house feels organic there. Um, and I like to play with that, that combo of modernizing an old thing. I'm doing a project right now and the house, we're not gutting it. I mean, we're not tearing down the house. We are doing the insides. And I keep showing her things that are clean and updated, but not so much that it's completely inappropriate for the architecture of this house. And I, I love doing that. And I think it's, um, it makes things more interesting than sort of just buying a canned product mm. where every, every house looks the same as everybody else's house. Like it's, yeah. which I see a lot of. It is, uh, you know, it, obviously for a, a certain type of consumer and also a certain type of builder developer, the, the economics of that make obviously a lot of sense, but hard to define character and nuance and, and story when things are being done in a very, you know, assembly line one after the next type of way. And I, I, I completely agree. I think that my projects are successes when it doesn't really look like I was there. Mm. So you don't walk in and go, oh my gosh. I mean, there are certain little things I do a lot, the little tricks or whatever, but I, it really should look like it's just was that way, right? Like it's just, it's, it's natural. It's perfect the way it is for the space, the place, the people. I think that's super important. I, I could not agree more. Um, on a completely side note, have you been to Montreal? No. 
I've been to my son, my eldest son went to boarding school on Vancouver Island. Okay. So I've been there and I've been to Vancouver and Whistler. Beautiful. Amazing places. Well, if you like are inspired by European architecture and stylistic elements and, and, and density and use of material, I, I think you would absolutely love Montreal. If that ever is in your travel plans, uh, it would be my greatest joy to um, give you the, the 10 cent walking tour of uh, old Montreal, which is our former walled, it was a walled fortress city into the late 1700s, still cobblestone, just some incredible architecture and design. I would love to share with you. Make a date. When when the world opens up and my son gets married in September in New York and that's done, I'm going to make a plan. I'm a 55 minute flight from New York. So that could be a very easy thing to do. I I imagine I will be back in California before that, but, um, and if I do, it would be my such an unbelievable treat for me to meet with you and and maybe have a coffee or a meal. And I'd love to cook for you in my outdoor kitchen. Well, let's cook together because you know, that's where this whole thing started. Um, I, I must tell you that it is a, it is an honor for me um, to have the, the products that we only started dreaming about, Stefan and I, in 2013 in your home. I, I acknowledge that you have unbelievable choice of brands and suppliers who would have scraped at the opportunity to you know, be part of your home. And I'm, I'm truly honored that you selected us to be there. And I don't take that lightly. And, and I hope that we are just a small piece of the canvas for the outdoor memories that you will create with your friends and loved ones. It's, it's, it's deeply meaningful and personal to me. Well, so thank, I thank you. you. I have I to thank tell you. you, people who come over are so wowed. And I've even had people ask to come back and look again when they're planning their project. So I hope there'll be a lot more urban bonfire kitchens in uh, Newport beach and uh, elsewhere. I great. Wonderful. I um, I've enjoyed this very much. Uh, I want to thank you for the time and um, for being just um, I've learned a lot from you through working with you on, on, on your project and through this. And uh, I uh, I'm a big fan. So I I thank you. Thank you for everything. Have a wonderful weekend. And uh, I will uh, definitely speak to you uh, sooner than later. I hope. Great. Thank you so much. See you soon. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Fireside Chat with designer Anne Michelson Yan. I absolutely love speaking to her. I love how she has not only put designs with outdoor cooking and experience into clients' homes, she has done it for herself and created a true cooking entertaining oasis in her own home for her friends and for her family. I learned a lot from her. I learned about her story. I learned about what it's like to grow up live in the same place and what it's like to actually redefine rooms that she grew up in as a child. An amazing, amazing episode. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like, please drop us a line at Urban Bonfire on Instagram, YouTube or LinkedIn and sign up and join us on our podcast series on Apple, Google or Spotify at Urban Bonfire. Thanks.